0: And welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, we are looking at the theme of beauty in The Hunger Games and The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is the prequel to The Hunger Games trilogy. If you have not read it yet, we would recommend going and doing that before because we are very well may talk about it in this episode. Actually, we will. I know my points, at least. <laughs>
1: and, yeah, so spoilers ahoy.
0: Yes. And since we did our special mini series on it, we did an episode on every three to four chapters of the book, go read it. It's great to listen to the podcast as you read along. If you already did listen and read it, then great, you're right on track. So, to start out our conversation about beauty, we're going to start with a quote, and this quote comes from the first Hunger Games book, when Katniss is in the Capitol and she is first getting worked on by her prep team.
1: I've been in the Remake Center for more than three hours, and I still haven't met my stylist. Apparently, he has no interest in seeing me until Venia and the other members of my prep team have addressed some obvious problems. This has included scrubbing down my body with a gritty foam that has removed not only dirt, but at least three layers of skin, turning my nails into uniform shapes, and primarily ridding my body of hair. My legs, arms, torso, underarms, and parts of my eyebrows have been stripped of the stuff, leaving me like a plucked bird ready for toasting. I don't like it.
0: Yeah, I I really do like that she doesn't like it, but... Mm -hmm at this is like this is unnatural and it's not practical it's just seems so pointless to her and then after the games at the beginning of Catching Fire I remember her thinking she was happy because her the hair on her legs started you know was coming back in and and Mm. she could feel it again and yeah I, I think that that's cool that definitely is not a a common perspective in the West, at least.
1: Yeah, I think this is a good example of of how the the present tense first person narrative of the original trilogy works really well because mm. it it just seems so visceral and and you just are right there with her as she is experiencing this makeover. You know, it's called the remake center in, in a way she never has before, and and as she's getting ready for this awful, horrendous event. Of the Hunger Games, this is another way they're forcing her to spend her time, and it is just tortuous.
0: And I think it it just so brilliantly shows how this is put upon people, mm. because the capital is making her do this, because their standard of beauty is what matters. The same thing is true in society in general. It's not like little girls are just like, I don't want hair on my legs you know they're not thinking about it unless they see other people other women without it and are like oh Mm. that's how I'm supposed to be because it's it's not the way the body naturally is and so when you're brought up in it it just it seems so normal because almost everybody is doing that but when you see it through Katniss's perspective you see how unnatural it is in in some ways how you know kind of ridiculous it is that that's a standard
1: yeah yeah absolutely and it's also
0: really ridiculous it's like you need to do this even though you're going to be dead in a few days <laughs> like <laughs> we want to see you dead but looking pretty to us
1: <laughs> the hunger games story
0: <laughs> exactly and i also um a, a little after they're finally done flavius says you look almost like a human being now, and <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a capital thing to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, really, really hitting the the nail on the head uh, in regards to we do not see district people as people.
0: Exactly, it's like you have hair on your body; that means that you are like an animal. Yeah, we definitely saw those kind of animalistic ideas in songbirds and snakes. And totally. that perspective didn't go away. <laughs> I'm so surprised now that Snow is at the helm.
1: Right. Well, why don't we get into our discussion? What character did you bring to discuss Beauty in the Hunger Games?
0: I decided that I wanted to talk about Senna. It's really interesting that from the moment that he enters the book, Katniss is taken aback because of how normal he looks to her because she's seen so many stylists from previous games that are just surgically altered and have dyed skin and, you know, Mm. these elaborate wigs and everything. And he's just dressed in black and his only kind of little flair is this metallic gold eyeliner that he has but everything else is just so not the kind of extravagant uh, standard of beauty of of the rest of the capital mm. and so he stood out to her from the beginning and i think in some ways it, it made him much more approachable for her and She was impressed with him, too, because for the opening ceremonies, not only did he not put her in a ton of makeup like they usually do, she did have more makeup in her interview, but at Mm. least for the first time, he, he really didn't do that much at all. He also used her braid, this hairstyle that she had chosen for herself. You know, at her reaping, she had this braid and... I thought it was really cool that he was essentially bringing beauty from the seam of District 12 to the Capitol Mm. instead of imposing the Capitol's idea of beauty on her and, like, just doing her hair in a way that the Capitol would do it. And I think another really cool aspect of what he does with beauty is that Katniss and Peeta's flaming opening ceremony costumes Basically, they were the same outfit. There wasn't a gendered component to the beauty of their costumes. It was Mm. very androgynous. And he also took what had really been a caricature with this tacky, stereotyped costume of District 12. Or, I mean, it seems like basically all of the districts. (laughs) And he made it into something that was a really, like, beautiful way to give the difficult and dangerous labor that District 12 does respect and, like, gravitas, you know? Mm. Those things really helped Katniss begin to trust him. And that trust lasted until he died and and even after that knowing that Cinna had wanted her to become the mockingjay and the, the sketches that he had left and the costume that he had already made for her in case she decided to do this that gave her more encouragement and courage that that he was supporting her in that and lastly in regard to Cinna, i just i really love how he brought out this kind of really important marriage of art and political resistance Hmm. to the the books you know this has been used throughout history and and i think he really shows how effective it can be because you know not everybody can be a great policy maker or teacher or writer or orator, whatever it is for the important causes of the world some people what they're best at is art and and i really like how cine shows how that can be powerful and can be significant in actually inciting change because he really did help bring the mockingjay to the forefront of penem as this icon that was katniss that katniss was able to to symbolize and that was in part due to, to his art and and in the beautiful way in which he did it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that Cinna is such a great character because exactly as you said, his, his strength being in design and the effectiveness of that is really made apparent when he is the first person of, you know, team Katniss to be attacked mm-hmm. where you know well before the rebellion even he is made an example of not only because i think he means something to katniss but also because he resisted he used his designs in ways that are effective and and go against the power structure and and so that really shows how important he was to her success as the mockingjay and her success in winning over the hearts of many of the people who are watching.
0: Would his hashtag be inflammatory art?
1: Yeah, there you go, inflammatory art. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but he he also is, I think, a, the the first example of a person who shows the humanity of the Capitol to Katniss. Where mm-hmm. you know, even in this quote that we read, she has this this kind of very frustrated line about how apparently he refuses to come see her until she is perfect or she is ready for him. And, and she, I think, is already building up or seeing that her, in her present tense, she's already frustrated with who this this person is going to be, and then... As I
0: would be, too. <laughs>
1: yeah, of course, which, which totally makes sense. But we see her also grow to love Sina and to respect Sina, and to see him as talented and intentional and thoughtful and all these other types of things yeah yeah he's he's a great great character and also he might be my favorite casting in the movies Lenny Kravitz did an amazing job as in a...
0: I mean but Caesar Flickerman
1: oh that's true Stanley Tucci is just mwah, uh, perfect
0: I mean there were there were several really good castings
1: that's true. Yeah, also, I, I shouldn't say what my favorite is, but he he's, he's up there. I, lo- I Winnie like Harrelson. Yeah, he did great.
0: What's her name who plays Effie?
1: Elizabeth something? Y-
0: yes, her. <laughs> <laughs> it is Elizabeth something. Yeah, the, there were several of them that did a really good job. Yeah, yeah. I also like Josh Hutcherson for PETA.
1: Mm. But
0: anyways, we digress.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Cinna, should I go into my plot? Do it. Good, because I I wanted to talk about just the idea of prep teams and stylists and the importance that they play in the narrative and in the power conflicts that are going on, because from the very beginning, we learn about the importance of it to the way the games run. Katniss mentions that the best-looking tributes tend to get more sponsors, Mm -hmm. and so... The idea of looking good and being attractive to capital standards is actually a strategy to winning the games. And I think that's a really interesting element that that I really just started thinking for the first time when I was reading through and preparing for this episode. Because the prep team, obviously, as we see, they, they do these awful, beautifying things to Katniss, and I'm sure to PETA as well, and all the other tributes, and, and it's all to these literally inhuman standards and, and these these really really problematic types of views of beauty, but while they are still within the system of the Hunger Games, this is the first time I've started realizing that it's not necessarily a capital-manifested or capital-directed element of the games, where it's not like Cinna or the other stylists are getting orders from the capital, the way that it seems like most of the other game is, or the game makers and above them Snow and others really have a, a direct hand in the way the games work. But here, this almost seems much more like the strategy of, and, and could be read as a strategy of survival for each of the tributes, which is of course part of the the general awfulness of the games as a whole
0: yeah in a sad way it's almost like a mercy to them because if they don't do this no one in the capital is gonna want to sponsor them yeah and,
1: and i also see it like the mentor more than i see it like other aspects of the games and and that's kind of a new thought for me because for me especially the prep team Sina you know, clearly was more of a revolutionary. But the prep team and, and everyone, they always seemed like, okay, this is the capital forcing their demands onto Katniss through her body in these really visceral and awful ways. But though that's true, it's also doing so in an extent that within the larger umbrella of this is the capital forcing her to take place in these games, it is for her survival in those games against other tributes. And... That's just been an interesting way for me to think about it because I never really thought of them the same way I thought of Hamich, of, you know, being in their corner and and being there for them in a way that you could actually argue that they are, that they are trying to make them as successful as possible through helping them get more sponsors to help them survive and succeed.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. It's like I choose not to wear makeup because of you know. I don't like the standards of beauty that America or the West in general put on women. Or, I mean, obviously not just the West because with colonialism that spread a lot of places. Mm-hmm. But if I was in the Hunger Games and I was actually trying to win, granted I wouldn't because I'm a pacifist. But <laughs> if I was actually trying to win, I would be like put whatever makeup on <laughs> me that you want because I'm going to try to get as many sponsors. I mean, it's corrupt that people would want to sponsor me and mm-hmm. like me better because I'm, quote, prettier than without it. You know, it's horrible. But if your goal is to get sponsored and to to get out of the games alive, then, yeah, paint it on.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, this this just goes into those discussions that we had during the Ballad of Songbirds of Snakes where... It's wrong to kill someone, but it's, I think, worse to create the situation where that is required and that if mm-hmm. you are doing what you need to, even if it is against your moral code, be that killing someone or putting on makeup, but if you're doing it for your survival, I think that there is a, I don't know, know—I it, it, it the problem there is not that you're choosing to do that as much as it is that you're being forced to make that decision.
0: Yeah. You know, this happens with with women in our society, mm-hmm. women who wear more makeup, get better tips. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're a server or if they're a bartender, and it's absolutely inexcusable and unacceptable. And so it's hard, too, because I think, yes, the prep team and the stylists are potentially giving certain of them advantages, but... Not really, because if all of them weren't dressed up, then people would better see the games for what they really were. Hmm. Then in another way, I think it's reinforcing this standard of beauty Hmm. where everybody in the districts, they're substandard. They're not okay because they're, they're not conforming to this, and the capital can only like them or root for any of them if they conform Mm -hmm. and i think we definitely see that in our society as well with women and you know photoshopping their photos so they can be in ads and yeah you know all of all of the terrible things that happen
1: yeah absolutely in uh in mocking jane the third book when they were talking about Beauty Base Zero, this place that they wanted to bring Katniss to before they started really making her up and turning her into the Mockingjay they wanted to to produce. I think she described that as being like you got out of bed looking flawless. And it just, <laughs> it, it just reminded me of how I think studies have shown that men see women wearing quote-unquote natural makeup as women without makeup. And that this expectation of women being makeup lists is already untrue. Our our perceptions are so clouded of what a woman naturally looks like that that's the case. So yeah, I just, I think that the, the book does handle that really well.
0: Yeah, and a, a quote that we were thinking about using was, They erase my face with a layer of pale makeup and draw my features back out. Huge dark eyes... Full red lips lashes that throw off bits of light when i blink mm-hmm. i just love that idea of like they're erasing your face and then they're drawing it how they want you to look mm-hmm. because yeah i mean that that's how i've felt about makeup for a, a very long time it's like but that's not me that's not what i naturally look like why do i need to look different you know and I I definitely see how damaging it can be like where I've heard my mom say like oh I look terrible without my makeup or I can't go anywhere until I put my face on like these are actual sentences that that she's said throughout my life and I was just like I never want to I never want to feel like I can't go outside my door without having done something to my face Mm. because I can't look like that you know like I don't want to like hate how I look and yeah I love how these books really just draw attention to to that and yeah it's it's bad it's bad not I mean not to say that nobody can wear makeup or whatever I mean that's a whole other conversation I obviously make the choices that I make mm-hmm. but you know there are a lot of feminists out there who say women should be able to do whatever they want you know um <laughs> Which, obviously, there's an argument to be made there, too. I also do like to point out, well, who is benefiting? You know, who's making money from this? Or, you know, what's the environmental impact? And, you know, all of these other aspects to make up than just how women look.
1: Yeah. And on the idea of wanting, being able to do whatever they want, if the pressure is there for them to make a decision a certain way... Right now, the pressure is to wear makeup. Then they can't just freely do what they want because those expectations are stifling.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Well, we should probably move on to our compelling questions. So, what, what question did you want to ask?
0: So, my question for you is: Where do you see in the books beauty like intersect with other issues of justice? So, whether that's class or gender or you know.
1: Hmm. Good question. One thing that I I do think is an interesting intersection in in regards to the capital culture of beauty is we don't see a lot of gendered difference in expectations. We we don't see a ton of capital characters generally. And while many of the men, I think, tend to have more toned-down looks when they are more kind of official characters, like Snow or Plutarch, we see Flavius as an example of a man who... Is dressed as audaciously as any woman, and and I think that that's something that is not as mm-hmm. accepted in in our society.
0: Yeah, purple lipstick, orange corkscrew ringlets.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I mean, look at Caesar Flickerman, who <laughs> has this extreme. We should always
0: look at Caesar. Yeah, Flickerman right. When yeah. <laughs> Stanley Tucci is Caesar Flickerman. <laughs>
1: So yeah, I think that it's interesting to see that intersection there where we see a society that in that sense doesn't mirror ours, where at least from from the view that we get, which is very much an outsider looking in, and it could just be that Katniss doesn't see the nuances between expectations between men and women, but both of them seem to have that kind of, that expectation, but also you could argue there's a freedom there too, where Obviously mm-hmm. the patriarchy affects everyone in many different ways and, and women typically are held to these high standards of beauty but I think the high standards that come with masculinity and toxic masculinity also limit some men's choices on how they might express themselves and feel comfortable or safe in our society. And mm-hmm. we don't seem to see that same thing at least with the characters that we, we watch in the capital.
0: It's interesting because it's like, on one hand it's like I guess at least everyone's held to an unrealistic standard of beauty <laughs> instead of just the women. so it's confining in that way, but then on the flip side, it's less confining for self-expression, because, yeah, Caesar Flickerman can like match his eyeshadow and lipstick with his hair, mm-hmm. you know, and change it every every year to be a different color. And, yeah, I think that that's one positive. <laughs> Thing about the capital (laughs) society is that yeah, it's it's not gendered in the same way that ours is. I mean, granted, Peter didn't necessarily get made up in the same ways, or Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily get all of his body hair taken off. Katniss did mention that none of the boys in the arena grew any facial hair, Mm. and so she was like, "What do they do to them?" But in general, I'm sure they didn't wax their legs or their armpits, you know?
1: Yeah. But, I mean, the other clear intersection is there with class, because, and this I think is a a better metaphor for our society, where the capital citizens have so much wealth that they clearly spend a lot of time and money on aesthetic and surgical changes to themselves to make themselves meet standards of beauty, while those in the districts are literally struggling to survive. And so if people are dyeing their skin green, I, I don't know what the technology is that lets that happen, but I imagine that that procedure would cost money. And who knows how many people that could have fed instead. We see that in our society, where standards of beauty lead to a huge beauty industry, which is Something that you were kind of touching on earlier of people are profiting from the standards of beauty put especially on women and
0: thirty five billion dollars are spent on makeup every year in the U S.
1: There you go thirty five billion dollars on makeup even look at like tanning salons and and and, mm-hmm. and and other types of things and and I mean you could you could extend this far enough to say barber shops and salons like I get you know where I I might go to get my hair cut I do it because I want to look good. And that's true as well. So, oh,
0: I thought you were talking about me because I cut your hair. <laughs> I mean,
1: that's true too. Uh, <laughs> but I, you haven't always cut my hair. And and I, I've made the decision to go to barbershops because I want to look good. And so those are considerations that For I have sure. yeah. put my money into as well. So, yeah, yeah, I think that that, that is absolutely there. But we see the... Uh, the wealth disparities so clearly in the Hunger Games, but those disparities exist in our society as well.
0: Absolutely. And like, I think in another way, it just shows that in so many ways, the U.S. is the capital of our world is when you, when you have so many millions of people every year die from preventable diseases related to malnutrition. Mm-hmm. In the first book, it, it mentions like, oh, yeah, people having surgery to make them look younger and thinner. And I mean, obviously, the, it, it's a complex issue because there is real oppression mm-hmm. on people to be thin. But with it, within that structure, it's it's just mind boggling to places where people are starving to death that people would have a surgery, pay money to look thinner mm-hmm. it's just so sad because you could spend 10 billion dollars instead you know to help people be able to eat you know just like basic things mm-hmm. that that all people should be able to have and yes yeah, it's, it's there is such a intersection with with class because it's like I, I have to walk two hours to like get clean water something like makeup is the this thing from my mind mm. you know yeah it's it's really only those who are privileged to have they they have the luxury to think about these things mm. and obviously it doesn't necessarily feel like a luxury because again the standard of Busey is oppressive mm. um people who are fighting for their lives or Katniss worried about if her family's gonna starve to death you know they don't have that privilege to be able to just think about how they look you know
1: yeah yeah
0: <laughs> or spend any time on it mm-hmm. um which i think also you know can intersect with uh, ability too mm. because i don't have the energy to like <laughs> it's like Ugh, why would i even spend time on that like it's hard enough to do normal everyday things that i need to do <laughs> like it's yeah that's just a whole other thing and then obviously people who depending on how their abilities affect their their body in the hunger games where chaff one of his arms was was a stump because he had lost it in the games and he refused to get Mm. a prosthetic and the Capitol doesn't want people to see their victor's quote-unquote damaged you know
1: by the games that they force them to participate in
0: oh yeah yeah no they want the victors to leave whole, Mm -hmm. and um that's that's another standard of beauty that's that's ableist at its core we could also you know have a whole conversation about like race and beauty and i think there's a lot there too but i'll I'll save that for when we get to race and in the hunger games sounds good there's so much to talk about already (laughs) Oh, well, and I I would, uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, that the more attractive people do better in the games, right, because they get better sponsorships. And I think Finnick is such an example of that, right, because he was 14. And I went back and I looked at that section and it said when he was in the games like he didn't want for food, for medicine, for weapons and like sponsors sent him the trident that he used Mm -hmm. in the games and she said it was like the most expensive gift that she had ever seen given in the games and that really does speak to just this general privilege that comes with being stereotypically attractive there's been studies on who people respond to or who mm. gets hired, or you know all of these different things that can really be an advantage to you in the world and And I think we see that here in in the books as well. Finnick just was really pretty, <laughs> and people liked that, and so that won him the games, you know mm-hmm. and Obviously, then he was oppressed through it after, which also can happen in the world. <laughs> yeah. Because you're going to get more harassment and unwanted attention and all sorts of things, too.
1: Yeah. But actually, that's another great transition into my question, which may not be as compelling for you to think about, but it is certainly compelling to me as the asker, and I'm sure will be for our audience as well, because you are a huge fan of Finnick O'Dare. I am. And he is a character who we see as, and we're introduced to, as defined by his beauty. His success in the games and his status afterwards, the way that he interacts with Katniss is very flirtatious and kind of is all centered around this persona that we find out is a persona, but is all kind of centered on his beauty. And so I am curious, for you, as a reader and a fan of these books... What was your journey like into falling in love with Finnick?
0: It was a wonderful <laughs> but tragic journey. I think it was a wonderful journey of of going from judgment to sympathy to, you know, respect. Hmm. At first I was like, ugh, why is he so gross? He's creeping <laughs> on her like, ugh, go away. <laughs> but then as as you're in the games and you get to see more of him and then obviously as as you get to district 13 you get to see more of who he really is not just how he performs and i think some of those lines do get blurred for him because he's had to put that on for so long mm. Maybe he is more, a little more flirtatious and playful than he would have been had he never been reaped. But we do see that a little even in District 13 where he's in his like hospital gown, you know, saying like, I I want to come with you to District 8 <laughs> or whatever. And they're like, um, you're clearly not <laughs> stable enough to be able to do that. And then, you know, he just quickly turns this into something to joke about and, like, just, like, struts away in his underwear, like, making some comment, you know? And it just, like, does a playful thing with it. And so I think he was doing that then because he wanted to, because he Mm -hmm. found it funny, rather than he was forced to do it and forced to, you know, be sexually exploited by people he would never want to be with or have anything to do with. And I think... When we find that out in District 13, when they're saving PETA and the rest of them, just to realize that at the beginning, you, along with Katniss, had so misjudged someone who had been so horribly treated. And yeah, and then just seeing how strong they have been and how strong they are in that moment to tell this story to the whole of pen m just made me respect him even more and just see how you know what a beautiful person he really was how much he cared about annie how much Mm. he cared about katniss and he he was really so supportive of her when they were in district 13 together and i don't know I kind of am like Katniss in some ways. <laughs> and so I was kind of on that journey with her. Whereas maybe other people who are less judgmental <laughs> wouldn't mm. who wouldn't have had as um, similar ex- an experience as Katniss did. But I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, what about you? That's
1: so funny because that, that scene of him... Making a joke about him not wearing clothes also really spoke to me and was a big part of of me really starting to like him as a character. Because, yeah, I mean, this might surprise you and my our listeners, but humor is something that I, I strive to incorporate into most of my life. And humor, especially a, a good joke, can show a lot about uh, a relationship between the people who are are, are telling it together. And him taking his clothes off, you know, as she's trying to help him and and seeing him in his situation. But then, yeah, making this joke about it. And and I think she responds because I think he says, you know, is this distracting? And she says, I'm only human. And Katniss (laughs) saying a joke to someone else uh, (laughs) is in and of itself a pretty rare occurrence in these books. And that really, I think, that small moment highlighted that he wasn't just this creep, that she no longer saw him as this person who was just creepily hitting on her with these sugar cubes or whatever it might be, that that, that (laughs) she really sees him as much more of a human than that and that she can also laugh and and be vulnerable and joke about his vulnerabilities and, and that that closeness is just something that that yeah was was really really important I think in in developing my love for him as a character and then of course the the other arguably defining aspect of my personality is my codependency and so his <laughs> his, his love and care for Annie is definitely something that that was really really touching for me that this was a person who you know is is lauded as the most desirable person in the capital and the person that he cares for more than anyone else is someone who is so traumatized and seems to have some different abilities than most people and he is always in a supportive role for her and I just think that that's a it's a little tropey but it also hits me right right where it hurts. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, and someone who had been uh, judged as so superficial Mm -hmm. to begin with, because it's like, oh, yeah, he, like, never stays with anyone. Mm -hmm. He's easy to be with, but he's not easy to keep, I think, is something that uh, Katniss had thought about him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think for someone that had been, yeah, thought to be so shallow to see that, no, he wants to be with somebody. Like he, he could have anyone, but he wants to be with Annie because of her. Yeah, and and that comes with the the good and the challenging.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, unsurprisingly, we've had a lot to say about the Hunger Games, so we should probably keep moving. Uh, what's <laughs> your missed opportunity?
0: So my missed opportunity is going back to Songbirds and Snakes because. It's talked about at the very end that concerts in the Hob were outlawed. Mm. You know, she's not supposed to sing The Hanging Tree anymore and, and whatnot. And I think that was a really interesting aspect. The fact that art can move people mm. and inspire people and incite people. As I was talking about earlier with cinema. And that's a dangerous thing for a dictatorship. Which is partially why a lot of dictatorships throughout history have, you know burn art or literature or different things mm-hmm. because they see it as dangerous and I think that I, I just wish that we got to see more of that you know what laws or policies were put in place for that Where, were they official were they on the books were they not um, was it the same in every district did these things come from the top you know because the capital is so flamboyant and self-expressive and i assume that there would be some things still that would be outlawed even in the capital obviously they didn't do a good enough job with that with (laughs) cinna and so i could imagine if that was not the last hunger games and it continued i could imagine that there would be new guidelines put Mm. in place for what they can and can't do as stylists but yeah i guess i just really would would like to see what else in in the capital and outside of the capital what was put in place to really um diminish the creative liberty that people had as people in the district and as as people in the capital
1: yeah yeah absolutely That would be that would be really fascinating to learn more about.
0: You can write fan fiction, but in the fan fiction, no one can go from living in the districts to living in the capitals. (laughs) Or there can't be like capital and district intermarriages, you know, like Mm -hmm. those types of rules would be very interesting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is that is really interesting.
0: What about you? What's your missed opportunity?
1: My missed opportunity is I think that this is likely because it is a young adult novel, but I think that there could have been more explicit engagement with how commodification and beauty standards come alongside sexualization
0: mm-hmm.
1: and how both tributes and capital citizens surely went through this kind of commodified sexualization process. And, and we see it hinted at at times with Katniss, um, but we don't see, I think, the extent to which that is so prevalent in the way that ways that we've been talking about throughout the whole episode. You know, I even think outside of Finnick, but in the uh, in the capital streets, we don't learn much about advertisements and how that commodifies beauty standards or mm-hmm. sexualizes women in particular, uh, but anyone who who might be someone who's in those advertisements and, and what what that means and. Yeah, the, the kind of commodification of bodies, I think, in a way that is not about violence, which The Hunger Games is so clearly about, but more about that that sexualization that and, and commodified sexualization that is so rampant in our society. And, and again, this is not the, the, the main thrust of The Hunger Games, but I think that it falls enough within its umbrella that I would have loved <laughs> to see some more uh, some more engagement with it. And stop laughing about me talking about the main thrust when I'm talking about sexualization.
0: It's not my fault you, you're saying this and you're choosing these words. You're the dirty-minded
1: like, one who can't think of thrust <laughs> outside of a sexual context.
0: I mean, you said it in a sexual context, so. <laughs> touche, <laughs> touche. To you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think it, it would be so interesting to see also, like, how potentially the stylus. Or, you know, how advertising is done and all of these different types of things could play into potentially creating a a fetishized Hmm. idea of people from the district or like of victors where it's creating an environment where, you know, more and more people will be treated like Finnick and, and forced to do what Finnick is because of that too.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's almost making me think that I wonder if that was the intent behind or or just an interesting reading behind when they talk about how I think one year, the District 12 tributes came out wearing like just headlamps and nothing else. And how nudity is a pretty common feature in tribute costumes. Mm -hmm. And is that a fetishization? Is it, you know, capital people being all like... You know, the same way that you'll see like cheerleader costumes or nurse costumes at Halloween or whatever yeah. in our society. And and at the worst end, when it gets into a racialized component, other types of costumes as well. But yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. And like how it would be so sad, but I, I could see part of that too, starting with Lucy Gray as the first tribute to ever have put a little bit of makeup on mm. and have entered her interview and then also the games in a dress that, you know, Tigress had washed. And it's this colorful dress and her being sexually exploited before and, and, and singing a song about that. Like, I could see, sadly, a gross fetishization starting there, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about your takeaway?
0: Hmm, the Hunger Games books are just excellent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> A surprising because takeaway.
0: We picked this theme, we put it on the the list of themes for the Hunger Games because it, it's prevalent enough that it's like we can talk about something. But the Hunger Games is not about beauty, you know, mm. like that's so far from the center of what the main themes of the books are about but there's still so much depth and richness there and it's still so intertwined with all of these other destructive aspects of the worlds of Panem that yeah I think it's just really done so well and how it's shown to be both incredibly oppressive, but also potentially powerful mm. for, yeah, someone like Sina, or even for, yeah, men in the capital who can wear whatever makeup they want and it, it's completely normal. Yeah, just just another thing that Suzanne Collins does a really good job of having nuance there.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: What about you? what What are you taking away?
1: I think my takeaway is actually going to be from from your last comment about Lucy Gray. Now I'm really curious into how Lucy Gray's beauty is discussed through Snow's perspective, as we talked about
0: tingling. Yeah.
1: Well, but yeah, because as we talked about in the Armin season, you know he has this really really awful possessive view of Lucy Grey as as he becomes more and more attracted to her. But from what I recall at least, and I've only read it through the one time, but I don't remember it ever really being explicitly about her beauty. It, it really, I think, was more about this kind of vulnerability and connection that he, he's starting to fe- feel with her. And so, yeah, I guess I, I would really be interested in seeing how that does or does not overlap with the way that his relationship with Lucy Grey builds. Because Mm -hmm. he is just the worst. And (laughs) yet, as we discussed in our mini-season, he is so well-written in those books that he is not a, I think, completely inhuman character. And so there are times when he isn't the worst in that specific way. And I I, I guess I'm curious to see if this is one of them.
0: Yeah, for our next (laughs) (laughs) read-through.
1: Exactly, which we're already planning. We just finished it a month ago, but there you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well what are we going to be discussing on next week's episode of the podcast
0: so when we return to avatar the last airbender and legend of korra which is on netflix so anybody can watch it and you should because it's awesome yeah if you haven't yet
1: <laughs> go and do that right now
0: it gets so good um so we are going to be looking at those series through the theme of courage
1: awesome well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. Or you can go to our website at bit.ly geekbetweenthelines Geek Between the Lines. You can also find us on Patreon by going to patreon.com geekbetweenthelines the Lines. If you want to help support the show, that helps keep us sustainable and also gets you access to all sorts of really fun goodies and extra content. So please go to Patreon and support us there. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out!